Today's guest is the co-founder of Resolute Future, a software company dedicated to empower the next generation of innovators. As a former VP of investment at J.P. Morgan Chase, where he spent 12 years with various of responsibilities, including sales, financial planning, management, and training. He held his Series 7, Series 66, and insurance federal and state license in over 20 states during his venture there. He built a $120 million business before leaving to start Resolute Future. While at J.P. Morgan Chase, he was recognized multiple times for his sales accolades, served on the diversity board, and helped increase the book of business 60 times under his leadership. He is also a serial entrepreneur dating back to his first venture in 2005 and 2006. He currently sits on the venture board for Dallas Entrepreneur Center, focused on increasing venture activity in the DFW area. He donates his time to the DEC Network, Capital One Accelerator Program, Mass Challenge Accelerator Program, and gives speeches at universities. He was voted by his peers North Texas Startup Evangelist of the Year for 2023. He graduated summa cum laude with a business administration and management degree from the University of Texas of Dallas. I'm thrilled and honored to welcome Michael Kelly. With 24 hours a day, organize your day, work hard. I'm here to talk about success. Hi guys, my name is Gina Shear, and you are listening to the Electric Theory Podcast. Today we have Michael Kelly. Michael, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This is going to be so much fun. I can already tell. This will be so fun. I'm glad we got some of the technical difficulties out of the way, and I hope that we can hear you loud and clear now. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Regardless, this has already been fun, just you know, <laughs> playing with technology the whole time. So yes, yes. The conversation yes. hopefully can live up to the rest of it. I hope so, too. <laughs> With that being said, let's kick. I would love to jump into your story. I know you had spoken a little bit about it to me before, and it was very fascinating. And you're very humble about it. So with that being said, please go ahead and share with us how you got started with your story. Yeah. Yeah. I've been an entrepreneur my entire life, which is weird because I did spend so long in the corporate world, but... Um, a funny story. I don't know that I've ever told anybody this story actually until very recently, but, uh, I've got the old, you know, lemonade stand story. Parents were doing a, a garage sale. So I went out to the main street and put up a lemonade stand, but that's not the funny part of the story. The funny part of the story is I was old enough to realize that we had to pay taxes on products, Okay. but not old enough to realize what the heck it was. Okay. So you knew that you had to pay taxes, but you didn't know what the taxes were. Yeah. Like like when you go to the store, the price is one thing. And then because of something called taxes, the price ended up being something else. Yeah. And I came up as this young entrepreneur with a pricing strategy on my lemonade stand where I would have a listed price. And, and then there was this magic tax that would bring you up to the price I actually wanted to sell <laughs> you the lemonade for. <laughs> and how old were you when this happened? I, I want to say, I want to say I was like eight or something like okay. that. Okay. I, I was, I, what was your tax number here? Oh no, it was completely arbitrary. 
It was like, okay, I'm going to list this for 99 cents, and then this is now going to be $1.50. Okay. And then this is going to be $1.80, but now it's $3. You know? Okay. <laughs> it was That's completely awesome. arbitrary. But the eight-year-old me thought, hey, this is going to be genius. Yeah. That's, That's the something. beginning of my entrepreneurial journey. I love it. Let's jump back to your time at J.P. Morgan Chase and maybe even before that. That's the story that I know that you have expressed to me. But obviously you had some major success there. Let's dive into that and how it got you launched to where you are today. Yeah, I spent just under 12 years there. I originally had actually dropped out of college when I got there, I was, I felt like it was high school 2.0 yeah. and I wasn't learning anything. And so yeah. I got really frustrated. It wasn't capturing my attention. I had businesses I want to start and I kept being told by people smarter than me, to shut up and go to class. Basically, I tried to listen to them for as long as I could until I got frustrated and dropped out. But one of the things that I did, there was a project that I did on the stock market. And while I was trying to figure out what is it that I want to do, I thought back to that project and I said, okay, that's really fascinating to me. So why don't I look more into that and I'll figure it out from there. And one thing led to another. I ended up going to work as a banker at first at Chase because at the time, it's not the case anymore, but at the time they said, if you get hired, yeah, you will get your preliminary investment licenses. Okay. If you don't pass the licenses, then you don't have a job. And I thought, hey, that's a pretty good deal. I'll try that out. Can't lose. Yeah, exactly. And and so I did that. I passed the licenses and got a job in Houston, actually. Okay. And this was November 2nd of 2009. So we're just still yeah. coming out of the financial crisis. Yeah. Everyone still thinks the world's ending. And I'm not really excited to get into investments, yeah. right? The crazy story. But What did your coworkers think of you jumping in full throttle at that time? I was 21 years old. <laughs> and so everyone was like, who is this young kid? And who does he think he is? Yeah. And actually at 20 years old, I was already managing an entire department at a previous career and had somebody who worked for me who had been working at that location for 21 years, longer than I'd been alive. So I learned very quickly to let other people think things are their idea because then they're more likely to actually do it. Yeah. So I ran with the punches and it was no problem. And then I decided I want to move to Dallas. So I transferred in it was December 15th of 2011 okay to Dallas from Houston from Houston same position banker moved to Dallas I ended up being one of the top bankers in Dallas and so I thought hey I'm going to leverage this to get what I really want which was to work at JP Morgan I wanted the full investment licenses I wanted to actually be in that world I was really excited for that so that's, that's what I wanted and it wasn't easy I had a lot of conversations with a lot of people because I was doing well at my current role, it wasn't. they didn't really want to move me to a whole other role. They're like, no, you're doing really well where you are. But I was able to get that push and go forward. This was December of, sorry, wait, no, December of 2010 is when I transferred. December of 2011 is when I actually officially started for J.P. Morgan. Okay. I got my Series 766 licenses. And officially started December 2011. And at the time, I was 23 years old. The average age for that position in the industry was 55. And I may have been 23 years old, 
but I looked like I was nine. That makes it even better because I know you're very humble about this and you were keeping up with the 55-year-olds. <laughs> so that makes the story even better. Being young, I had more energy, so maybe that helped. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I, I did that role for actually only about 10 months or so before getting another promotion and going into the private client division there. And that was a very difficult decision because when I went from a banker to advisor, I took a big pay cut, actually. Okay. I'm thinking long-term, hey, this is going to come back. Sure. Um, but there was somewhat of a minimum guarantee. So when I took that next role, I essentially lost the minimum guarantee. So yeah. I even went lower on my income. So you um, had to really bet on yourself. I was really betting on myself. But fortunately, it paid off um, pretty pretty quickly, actually. And next thing, my income was, was jumping you know, by 50% a year, basically, till I left. So Yeah, that's awesome. And what kind of accounts were you handling there when you were doing private accounts? Yeah, so my... Actually, this is an interesting story. At one point, I realized I had 430 clients. Okay. And I was managing about $34 million. Wow. It's a good chunk of change right there. Yeah, and I realized this isn't sustainable. This isn't scalable. And I can't manage 430 relationships. Sure. It's not possible. What would you say the average banker was managing at that time? In, in our area, it, was, it ranges quite, quite a lot. But maybe $75 million, somewhere around there. Okay. And, but, but of course, they've all been doing it longer than I had. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to change my strategy. And I think I can only handle 115 to 120 clients. So I've got to figure out how to get rid of over 300 clients. And, wow. and I think it's best for them, right? Because yeah. I want to make sure that everyone I'm working with can actually have a good experience. Yeah. And, and I'm only going to choose people that I'm not afraid to call. I don't ever want to be, ah, oh, man, I have to call someone. This conversation is going to suck. What was that? What would that fear stem from? It's not really, I guess fear might be the wrong word for, for intimidation. it. But, but it's more along the lines of this is going to be a tough conversation. Yeah. And there's some people that can handle tough mm-hmm. conversations and there's some sure. people that can't handle tough conversations. Right. And I'd rather talk to people who can handle tough conversations. Yeah. Because we have to have them. Yeah. Right? More uh, of that emotional intelligence. Exactly. And and even somebody who maybe has an emotional roller coaster, because it is a stock market, it's, the, it's sure. their, their livelihood, right? Somebody that can look in and say, okay, what do we do next? Mm-hmm. What do we do now? And ha- what have you done to prepare for this and so on and so forth, right? Have a conversation around that versus pe- people who can just be rude, right? Yeah. Because I don't want to talk to rude people. Yeah. And that was my minimum requirement. Okay. And, and, and Chase was okay with this. I guess they didn't really have a choice to yeah, be either. I, I basically said, this is how I'm going to manage the business. Yeah. And credit to my boss. He actually, he believed in me. And so he said, hey, you know what? Like, I understand. And let's try this out. Yeah. And he actually is one of the first investors in Resolute Future. So um, that tells you something about yeah. my relationship with him. But by the time I left, I was down to 112 clients and over $120 million. Wow. So it uh, worked out. It's pretty scalable then. You made it happen. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. And then I know that we had talked about this offline, but from that entrepreneurial journey and really the situation you put yourself in that time frame, 
that's how you kicked off your entrepreneurial journey. Is that correct? Yeah, I guess I had a few journeys before that. In high school, I, I a buddy of mine had a company. I jumped on with him. It's called Newlands Delivered. Before the iPhones, it was on a website, but it was okay. essentially an early version of DoorDash and Instacart okay. combined on one website. You go into Chili's and Kroger and Albertsons and Macaroni Grill. I'm trying to remember some of the restaurants that we had on there, but negotiate with them, get them to, to put on our website in 2005. Which people forget. Nice. 2005. Yeah. You weren't rocking a cell phone. Yeah. People are like, website? What's that? You know? Yeah. Um, obviously, like, even some people who knew what websites were, like, ah, it's useless. Yeah. You know, only a couple of years ago, we had the tech bubble, right? That was an interesting experience. But listen to smarter people told me to go to college, so I stopped doing that and did. So that was my first entry into something like that. And then while I was at J.P. Morgan... I actually had started and created a couple of companies while I was there. The problem is it's really difficult to manage a book at J.P. Morgan and sure. have companies on the side. Sure. And so it's really important to have the right people, the right partners. And I actually closed one business that was profitable just because I had the wrong partner. And it was like, this is not worth the headache yeah. because of everything else that I have going on. Yeah. So that, that was the experience I had coming into this. Mm -hmm. And because at the end of the day, what I've found is there's a lot of unreliable people and resources in this world. Yeah. And you'll find it any, everywhere, whether it's the corporate world, startup world. Yeah. And that I wanted to do something about that. Okay. But more importantly... You wanted to be that reliable source. For people? Or I always want to be a reliable source for people, but I can't scale myself. There needs to be better filters and metrics on how people get connected mm -hmm. to resources. Mm -hmm. right? And so I spent a lot of time thinking about that. I actually did a lot of research into the economy, obviously, yeah. from my time at JP Morgan. But one thing that I think that really drives what I do actually is. I feel like in the United States, there's a lack of purpose, right? Absolutely. People go from one thing that happens to them until something else happens to them. Yep. And they just respond from one thing to the next. Yes. And there's no creation to their own life. There's no design mm -hmm. to their own life. They have the ability to do it, but a lot of people just don't. And it really hit me when I read the book, Man's Search for Meaning by yes. Viktor Frankl. Yes. If you haven't read it, it's probably one of the most impactful books anybody will ever read. And while I was exploring the thoughts and theories of that book, I also happened to read the World Happiness Report shortly afterwards. And there was a paragraph in the report, I will never forget this, that said, by all metrics that we can account for, America should be the happiest country in the world. Yes. And we don't know why it is not. And I just thought to myself, if we just look at purpose and happiness, it's actually quite obvious. Right. Um, but let me look at the data. Let me look at the information. And the first question I asked was, what do Americans on average say provide purpose to their life? And it's three things. Religion, family, and their job. Workplace. Yep. The fastest growing religion is atheism. So, you know, That's regardless no of what religion is, if Americans say that provides purpose, we're yeah. losing that. The second one is family. Yep. We have skyrocketing divorce rates mm -hmm. and people are having less kids. Yep. Right? Again, regardless of what you think about those things, that is dropping families yeah. in, in America. 
And the last thing is job. And there's two studies I read. Um, one was there are, is a growing amount of Americans who don't find purpose in what they do mm-hmm. in their lives. Yes. The next one is actually even scarier to me. There's a growing amount of Americans who believe that the job that they do provides no value to society at all. Wow. So they can't even find purpose on what they give to somebody else. And to me, entrepreneurship provides purpose, not just to the founder's life, but the people who decide to join the journey with the founder. Yeah. And I believe that a lot of problems in America could be solved if we just get people back to having purpose to their lives. Absolutely. And another weird concept that is tangential to this is we look at the widening economic gap. A lot of politicians use these stats to their own benefits depending on what their views are, but they all chop it up. The real stats Mm -hmm. are if you break down population segments by how many people are in these different economic segments. Right. And there's only two segments that are actually growing in population, meaning populations are moving into these segments. And it's the upper middle class and the rich. Yep. Which means people are actually getting wealthier and moving up. Now, the fastest losing population is the lower middle class because they're moving up. Mm -hmm. The second fastest losing population is the middle class Mm because it's moving up. The, the class that's getting left behind, they're still losing population, but not as fast as they should be as the poor. And it's actually because of how our welfare system is set up. For example, if you get, I'm going to make up numbers, $800 in benefits a month from sure. welfare. Sure. And you're doing a good job at your job. And let's say you get a raise of $300 a month. That, that could cause you to actually, depending on how your benefits are set up and everything, to lose $800 a month in benefit. That's not a good economic right. trade. And then that person might start working less so they yeah. don't have that negative outcome. Yeah. That's a smart decision on their part, especially if they have bills to pay. Now, how do they progress in their career? Entrepreneurship does something that's interesting. Your income goes from nothing and has the ability to actually uh-huh. grow quite quickly. So you can blow past that. Yeah. So the Kaufman Foundation has done a lot of research and they found that an entrepreneur is actually 10 times more likely compared to an employee to go from the bottom 20% in wealth to the top 20% in wealth. So we got we have we to be teaching people yeah. how to be more entrepreneurial, except entrepreneurs are cast out of all systems of society in a lot of ways. Our entire society is designed to create... is organized to create and support employees. Correct. Whether we're talking about school systems, the banks, right? I've seen yep. it firsthand at JP Morgan. Yeah. If you're an entrepreneur, don't even try to get get a loan, a house loan, right? Yeah. Try to get a mortgage. Don't yeah. even think about it. Yeah. Um, and so from all these components of our society, it's all orchestrated around employees, healthcare, right? You name it. And so how are we going to solve these problems? Yeah. And that, that's, that was the start of my journey, actually, is seeing that and saying, I'm really passionate about this. I personally should never have been in corporate America. Right. I, I was in a very entrepreneurial world, role at J.P. Morgan. Yeah. But I still have the red on my forehead from all right. that tape I ran into. So it was an interesting experience for me. So do you think you leaving J.P. Morgan was because of your lack of fulfillment there or the need to solve a bigger issue? The need to solve a bigger issue. Like I said, it's doing really well there. I had a lot of great relationships. I still have a lot of great relationships. Yeah. There's a lot of wonderful people at JP Morgan. 
I loved the clients that I worked with. From that, and as my wife will tell you, it was a very difficult decision to walk away from yeah. the financial spec situation I was at there. But credit to her, she supported me through that decision. But yeah, it was a bigger, something bigger was out there for me. Yeah, that's awesome. And at what year did you step away? 2021. Crazy time to step away. Yeah, yeah. And so what was your next step after you did leave there? Yeah, the next step was finding out that a lot of my assumptions were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great one. Leave corporate America and you hit reality and you realize... You may not have had all the answers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I, in making that step, we had one vision for what the company would look like. Yeah. And it was actually pretty quickly that we decided to do something else on the side that we thought would help our initial business. And then we realized, oh my goodness, this thing on the side, actually, it, that's the business. That's it. That's yeah. it. And so we did a full pivot. But now we have to do customer discovery all over again. What was your initial idea? So the initial, we were going to be an investment firm investing okay. in startups. Right? Okay. We were going to have our own unique niche that we were going after. And we had a lot of experience between founding team. And mm-hmm. we thought we were going to do something really interesting. But again, we were more impact focused. And so with this new thing, we were like, holy crap, we can actually scale this change Mm -hmm. a lot better yeah and later we can come back and do a fund and it'll actually be be even better because of the data that we'll have sure but yeah so we had to make this big pivot and now we have to do customer discovery all over again yeah how did you make the discovery that the side piece was actually the real venture yeah when we started we thought we were solving just a problem for ourselves okay is really what it was. And then we realized the sheer scale of the problem mm-hmm. and how many people have it that we said, oh, no, we this is actually a bigger deal than you know some fun, funding into right. a limited amount of startups that we would be, actually be able to go into. This has the potential to truly live out our value of de-risking the life of an entrepreneur that has nothing to do with the risks of their business. Yeah. Our goal is to touch that too and, and and try to make impacts on the risks of the business as well. But the long-term impact of what we're trying to build right now, I truly believe we can de-risk the components that have nothing to do with the actual business of the entrepreneur. So then it becomes viable to actually create more entrepreneurs. Yeah. Take that risk component out of it. And a lot of people would be more willing to create a company and a business, all these great ideas that could come to life from that. And more problems can be solved. Yeah, absolutely. So what does your company actually do? Break me through, walk me through the process. Yeah, so there's some things I'm not ready to talk publicly about yet. Okay. All right, so. Coming in the future, Yeah. part exactly. two. <laughs> exactly, um, as we build a more resolute future. Um, <laughs> but uh, yes, you know, trying to think of what I want to share, right? We are building a personalized guide for founders Okay. in resource discovery. So we are indexing the available resources that exist. And we're building a model that understands who each resource serves best. Yeah. And, and then personalize the resource discovery because 
just because a Twitter thread or an X thread, whatever you want to call it, yeah. says that your tech stack should look a certain way. Their business was built at a different time in mm-hmm. a different location, solving a different problem. And and so may, your tech stack may or may not look like that or should yeah, look like totally. that. Yeah, right? totally. And yeah, so that's the, the high level component where we'll start, which will allow us to do a lot of things like market gap analysis. Sure. Which then brings it to where we can start doing unique due diligence tools for investors. We've got a partnership with an amazing company who will white label their solution into our platform, which will increase liquidity for startup companies, for investors. Yeah. And so the impact then starts becoming, and this is stage two, where we can actually increase the speed and transparency of money and information in Mm -hmm. startups, which now widens the base of who would be willing to allocate money out of their portfolio into private companies, yeah, which is going to be a necessary step before we can start creating entrepreneurs, right? And then the last piece is once we've built this, we'll call it foundation, where whether you have an idea or you're a Fortune 500 company, you're utilizing our mm-hmm. tool, we've got investors and we're, and we're growing the, the base of investors. We then either plan on partnering with charities or creating our own, which go into low-income communities focused on capturing who is an entrepreneur who's mm-hmm. maybe because they're an entrepreneur they, they end up dropping out of school yeah or something of those sorts they have a single parent household so there's not a whole lot of oversight they're around a lot of bad behavior which yeah. they get desynthesized to yeah right that kid if instead we're able to get to become an entrepreneur imagine that's the kid that changes the world totally right? um, because they have the fire underneath them yeah you take their negative experiences, have them change it for good, mm-hmm. have something that they are passionate about that they can live out into their future. That's the secret sauce. Exactly. I'm a firm believer that it's not possible to feel joy without mm-hmm. battle scars. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and like you can extrapolate that into a lot of areas. It's an interesting concept. I've never really broken it down or heard it phrased that way. Yeah. And if you actually look in the eyes of any entrepreneur who has found any level of success, you can see the battle scars in their eyes, right? Like they've got a smile on their face, right? They love life. Yeah. But they love life and they have a smile on their face because they know what they've been through and they know what they've overcome. Yeah. And and so that, that is something that's really important to me. Yeah. And... I believe in charity that is sustainable. So that's a charity where we're literally creating more customers right. for our company while doing good in the world at the same time. Absolutely. And so it becomes a sustainable motion between the business and the charity. Yep. And you know, then you don't have to take outside donations. You don't have to be at the whims of other people. You don't have to deal with the politics of mm-hmm. other organizations. Yeah. And, want you to do it a certain way because it makes them look better, not right. because it has a better impact. No, we can just do the work that we know needs to get done and yeah. make the impact that we want to make. That's incredible. I'm excited for that. Yeah. So when do you foresee all of this actually coming into play, like in launch launching? When do you foresee that happening? So our initial launch, uh, I'm eyeing for end of Q1 next year. Okay. So we'll launch just in Dallas first. It's software, so there will be bugs. So let's yeah. break it with our friends. Yeah. Hopefully they won't hold it against us. Yeah. And then we'll fix the bugs. And then fortunately, during our customer discovery, one of the, having to redo our customer discovery, one of yeah. the, the good things that came out of it is even though everything got delayed, 
we ended up building a lot of amazing relationships across the nation who are really excited about what we're building and will very quickly work with those partners to launch across the U.S. And then, yeah, so hoping maybe by the end of next year, beginning of 2025, we'll start launching across the U.S. and start building a lot of the foundational data that will allow us to build the foundation that everything else will be built on top of. That's awesome. And how does this play into, I actually had a phone call earlier today and someone was mentioning to me, they were trying to get my advice on just being involved in the community of Dallas, doing a lot of like community events and running a lot of that. And they were asking me about different networking events and stuff. And I had actually mentioned yours. How does all of this tie into the X club? Yeah. Funny. So one day I was sitting around and I was just thinking, even though our software is not ready yet, mm-hmm. does that mean we can't start making an impact now? And if we wanted to start making an impact, how would we go about doing that? Yeah. And we actually originally had a partnership with another company who was doing events in another area right, yeah. about expanding here. And we actually approached them because we had this idea of what we wanted to do. I knew exactly how I wanted to do it. We ended up finding out about them. So I said, hey, let's talk to them and say, hey, yeah. let's partner and help you expand here. Yeah. Um, actually had a signed partnership, but um, due to just some things in the past that we weren't comfortable with, we ended up breaking off that partnership and saying, hey, we're going to do it ourselves. And so that's how the X Club was born. Mm-hmm. And for listeners that don't know what the X Club is, do you mind breaking that down even like high level what the X Club is? Absolutely. It's purposeful networking, right? Showing up, knowing what you need, what you can provide, and then our attempt to connect you to the right people at yeah. the right time. Yeah. And so far, all we've done is big top of funnel events. The idea is kind of do those on a quarterly cadence, but really the ones that we're building towards, which our goal is to start in January, is small, intimate, curated events around very specific problem solves. Mm-hmm. You know, if we have seven to 10 founders who are all stuck with the same problem, that's what being an entrepreneur is. You yeah. build until you get stuck, and yeah. then you have to solve that riddle, and then yep. you build until you get stuck again. Yeah. And, and so the idea is, hey, let's get these people together in a room, maybe have dinner or something, and we will invite experts who understand this riddle right. and then help them solve the problem in their own organization. Yeah. While at the same time, building a community. Now mm-hmm. there's seven to ten people who can hold each other accountable sure. within each other's organization around solving that problem. Yeah. Because I believe that is one of the biggest components of success. Yeah. A lot of people think you have to see somebody succeed ahead of you. And I actually think you need co-conspirators to go on a journey with you. I agree. And funny, my aha on that was my wife. Growing up, she played golf, tennis, and volleyball. And she ended up playing golf in college. But she always told me, I really just wanted to play volleyball because it was guys on the golf course. Right. I wanted to play with my girlfriends. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And she ended up playing golf in college, right? So we're, yeah. we're not talking about somebody who, who can't play. Yeah. And it was like, so well, she could see the LPGA tour yeah. anytime she wanted to. Sure. It was more important to her to have somebody go on the journey with. Right. And that was my aha into yeah. that concept. It does make sense because and you don't realize how lonely 
the journey of being an entrepreneur is yes. until you are one. Yeah. Like you hear about it, but actually feeling it is something totally different. Like I can call my best friend who is an entrepreneur of herself, just very different. Mm-hmm. And I can tell her about like the craziest problem that I had to solve. And she'll just like laugh at me, not in a bad way, but I know that she can't relate. Yeah, And so it's, you have to find your people that you can relate with and really stick to them because it's a lonely journey out there for sure. This is definitely a lesson for any family member or friend of an entrepreneur. You will never understand. It's just not possible. Yeah. You can still be very supportive. You can still be very supportive and I highly recommend doing so. And then if your friend or family member's business has some type of paid service or product. Yeah. Do not ask for it for free. Yeah. Support your yeah. friend. Like yeah. They have a business, they're trying to make it. Right? Yeah. And to your point, it doesn't matter who you have in your life. At the end of the day, you're isolated, sitting in a chair, trying to solve problems in your own head. <laughs> that you weren't taught to do. <laughs> you weren't taught how to do. <laughs> uh, my math class didn't teach me how to do that. <laughs> I mean, that's real, though. Yeah, like Exactly. That's, so that's a, a normal basis. It's a very isolating and lonely experience. Yeah. And it takes a very special type of person to do that. Yeah. And it may sound ironic coming from somebody whose sole purpose is to create entrepreneurs in the world. Yeah. But I'm not trying to get people who are not entrepreneurs to become entrepreneurs. I'm yes. trying to get entrepreneurs who are currently stuck in, as employees right. to become entrepreneurs. Right? It's a very different thing. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I think that's really fantastic advice because... It is a very lonely road, no matter how many people are around you. So yeah. if you can get people who have the same problem uh-huh. that they're trying to solve at the same time, yeah. and you can now hold each other accountable, that's why I'm really excited about starting those events. That's awesome. I'm, I'm very excited myself for those. I do have a question. What would you say when you're talking about that, the solution of what you had just said, trying to get people that are stuck in the workplace that are called to be entrepreneurs out of corporate America to become an entrepreneur, what would you say to those people? Because I know it's not as easy as just being like, okay, I'm going to quit my job and go start a business tomorrow. What would you, what advice would you give? What tips would you say? Or just what encouragement would you say to those people in general to give them the confidence in that urge and that little fire under them to actually start? Yeah. So there's a reason why it's called the golden handcuffs. And it's designed that way. It's designed specifically to keep you in that seat. Yeah. And everybody's situation's different. I think today it's very difficult to go to somebody and say, you should leave your very comfy seat. Yeah. And come on this rocky ride with me. Yeah. Right? It's a very difficult conversation to have. Yeah. Unless they're already very financially stable or... They're so early in their career that they don't have a whole lot of obligations. Yeah. But somebody in between that, which is where most people reside, it's almost an impossible step. And I'm not going to, to try to paint it with rosy pictures and say, yeah, it's going to be so much fun because it's, yeah. a, it's a rocky, bumpy, bump bumper car ride. Yeah. But that's why I'm trying to de-risk outside of business risk first. Yeah. That's why that is something that's really important to me before we ever. And what do you mean by that? Yeah. So if I can create a customer class called entrepreneur. Okay. Then 
let's start capturing and showcasing data of missed mm-hmm. sales and opportunities for organizations who currently cater to employees. Yeah. To start catering to entrepreneurs. Think about this. If you want to buy a house next year, I would say that you were crazy to leave your W-2 job. Yeah. Like, yeah. Don't. Yeah. That, that would be the worst mistake unless you don't want that house. So those are the types of things because every year there's something else that you want to do. And, and so until we can get that part of the golden handcuffs off, then it's not something that you can ask somebody to make that decision. Yeah. That, yeah. That is crazy. It's crazy that you, you say that because we talk about the bumpy journey. I think it's a lot more extreme than even just a bump. Exactly. <laughs> you wrote it. People don't realize not it. It's associated with the business that people just never think about. Yeah, totally. Now I have a question on the flip side. If you had to give someone, whether they're an entrepreneur or not, mm-hmm. investing advice, where would you say that they start? That's a good question. Problem is I just, I know too much of this world. All advice that's out there is all meant for a specific customer, mm-hmm. but they don't tell you that. So like Warren Buffett says, invest in the index, don't mm-hmm. invest right outside of the indexes, but he doesn't do that. Right. It's because he's not talking about to himself, himself, right? He's talking to the average person that has no knowledge of anything yeah. that only has a small amount of money that they want to grow. Right. Um, but there's a certain point in a financial lifetime where you hit and you need advice. So I, I think until you get to that point, you should be investing in indexes, yeah. S&P 500, right? yeah. invest long-term, do not invest short-term. That's one of the biggest mistakes, only invest in, in your money in stocks and the things of that sort that you're not gonna touch for 20 years. Have you seen that become more challenging, especially in younger generations? That desire and instant gratification. Yes. <laughs> yes. There is no hesitation on that. Yeah, no. Instant gratification is a big challenge for everyone. Uh-huh. And actually, so I'm going to talk about an investing concept that actually applies to time as well. And is really important for entrepreneurs to think about. When you're investing, whether it's your money or your time, you need to build a portfolio. Yeah. If you are retired and you need income, you might have stocks and bonds your stocks are going to be dividend paying stocks because right. they're going to be paying income to you that you then use to pay your bills. If you're early in your career, you don't need the income. Mm-hmm. So you do not really need to be buying dividend stocks. You need to be buying young companies with a lot of growth potential. And the irony is those growth companies will eventually become dividend paying companies yeah. right? by the time yeah. you actually need the dividends. Yeah. But a well-created portfolio is one that is diversified amongst your goals and timelines. So what I mean by that is, if you take an average 50% stock, 50% bond portfolio, there has never been a five-year period where that portfolio is at a loss. If you take a 100% S&P 500 portfolio, there's never been a 20-year period where that's at a loss. So wow. it can't happen, it just right. hasn't happened. Right? Right. And so, Thinking probabilistically about how you construct your portfolio is really important and how you spend your time. So a well-created portfolio says I have some percentage of Mm -hmm. my time and money designed to make my life easier right now. 
I have some percentage of my time and money designed to make my life easier five years from now. Mm -hmm. I have some of my time and money designed to make my life easier 20 years from now. Yeah. So on and so forth. So when you're thinking about taking on customers, when you're servicing startups, the age-old question, do I charge for my services? I need to charge for my services. How much do I charge for my services? And what I tell people who have those questions is pick a few and however many you pick depends on your risk appetite. Yeah. That you say, okay, they can't pay, but I really believe in what they're doing. Yeah. So I'm going to allocate 10% of my time to them. Yeah. In hopes that I'm making my life easier 20 years from now. Yeah. And then I've got some who maybe I'm charging a smaller amount with the goal of growing that amount of spend, and I'm only going to spend 10% of my time with them. Mm-hmm. And then 80% of my time, you got to pay me now because I got bills to pay. Yeah. And for each individual, that's going to look different, both in t- time and money. So when you're thinking about how to build that, you first have to understand what your goals are, what your risk appetite is, and what your time frame is. Yeah. Organize those three things, and then it becomes a lot easier to answer that question. That broken down that way, I feel like, makes that whole process digestible in itself. And that is much more simplified. So thank you for that advice. Yeah, absolutely. I could literally sit here all day. We might have to do a part two. But for the sake of time, we are going to jump over to the jar question. So you have a jar in front of you. If you don't mind opening that up, there should be a brown piece of paper on top if you don't mind reading that and answering it to the best of your ability. Suspense. What's one thing you thought you knew, but you learned later was wrong? You just named that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, so I, I have to think of a different one. Part of my problem, actually, is I'm so much of a learner. Yeah. And I don't really look back. So sometimes... I don't even remember what my old thoughts were. I'm like, no, this is the right way. No, I thought it was a different way before, but I don't even remember what that thought was. Because you've continued to educate yourself. Moving forward. Yeah. So I'm self-aware enough to know that is a problem that I have. Yeah. I feel feel like I need to start journaling. I was about to say, do you journal (laughs) so you can look back at your timestamps to see different details? So what is something that I thought you knew? Once thought I knew. But I later learned that I was wrong. You know, I always joke that I don't ever lose. I just learn, and I've learned a lot. Yeah. And and even still, it's sometimes it's hard to, to think about specific instances when that happened. But I would say at one point, I thought that people are who they are. And you have this visual snapshot of who someone is and then you look back and you see a totally different person um, later on compared to what you thought your snapshot of that person was sure are you talking snapshot when you first meet them and your perception of that person yeah so it could be first meet somebody or maybe you know them really well yeah and then you haven't seen them for a few years, and then you meet them again. Yeah. And you're like, holy moly, this yeah. is a different person. What happened here? What was the catalyst? Yeah. And, and I think that's something that I think is really important today. Yeah. In today's world where we're going back 20 years and looking at what somebody said or did 20 years ago. Right. 
I think everyone probably at some point has said or done something that they might regret. Sure. And and let's start looking at people for who they are mm-hmm. and not this avatar that we've created yeah. in our minds. I have a funny story about that. There was a situation about last year, went further beyond that, but I'll say this. There was a kid that I used to be in my grade in high school and we went to the same schools like growing up and I never really got along with him like I guess he was the geeky kid and just the nerd but he was always like super nice to people but I just knew him as the nerd like he wasn't one of the cool kids so I just I don't know didn't pay him any attention a year ago my brother and I went on a ski trip and apparently he was friends with this guy that I had no idea that they were friends I didn't even know that they knew each other. And he shows up with my brother at the airport. I was like, what are you doing here? (laughs) And then during that trip, someone that I hadn't seen since high school just didn't pay a lot of attention to or give time a day to became like a good friend. And I realized how cool he was. And we got along on a whole different level, like on a business level, like his geekiness. Now I matched up to, and I was like, wow, you're really cool. But I never thought that Mm -hmm. then. So you're totally right with that. I love that story because one concept I've thought about a lot recently is every single person at least has the capacity to be incredible in some way in Mm -hmm. their life. Right. Yeah. A lot of people just don't find that way for themselves, Yeah. but they have the potential in some way or some manner and there's so many people that, you know, if you meet them for the first time, they seem a little awkward, but then you meet them in a different context, in a context that they're comfortable in. Yeah. And you're like, whoa, who is this? Person? Yeah. I've not seen them like yeah. this before. And they're living in their purpose, exactly. just like we talked about. And then it becomes like really intriguing. And yeah, so I love that story. That's awesome. Yeah. I have one last question before we close out here, and this only ties back to what what you've talked about several times in this conversation, and it is for those people that may lack what their purpose is right now. Maybe they don't know what it is, or maybe they're just truly not living in it for whatever reasons, hanging out with the wrong influences or being placed in the wrong space and not have that creative ability to flow, whatever the cause is. What would you say to those people that maybe have a nudge on what their purpose is, but not living in it? Where do they start? How do they get out of that? Whether in their corporate America or not, or they truly don't know what their purpose is. What would you say to those people? I would say, look at how you spend your time and not, oh, I spend X amount of time at work. No, I'm not looking at that, right? How, when you have a choice, mm-hmm. what do you choose to spend your time on? Yeah. And that will at least get you started into what's important to you. Yeah. Some people might say, oh, I watch Netflix and stuff like that. Okay, but you can say, I'm interested in stories or entertainment or like you can look at tangential things. It's not the Netflix you know, show itself that has actually captured. Right. It's just taps into something inside mm-hmm. of you. What types of shows capture your attention, right. right? You can go deeper, but how do you choose to spend your time? When are you happiest? And then start just researching more into it. Because you know, just like we're talking about people have layers, Yeah. so, so do other things, right? And as you start peeling layers of the onion back, you start finding 
nuggets that you didn't know about. Just like I could have said, oh, I like entrepreneurship. Right. Cool. What about it? I just think it's fun and cool. Obviously, in this conversation, you've seen how many layers I've pulled back on, right? And the more layers you pull back, you either become more intrigued or less intrigued. And, And so keep doing that until you start getting into something that seems to pull you in further. Yeah. And, and then, secondarily, look at what you're good at. Yeah. Because it's usually not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it is. Mm-hmm. But what are you really good at? And then that's when you can say, okay, I'm good at X. I'm really passionate about Y. I will use X to serve Y. I love that. And it doesn't have to be your job. Yeah. Okay. It doesn't have to be your job. But show up with a mentality of servitude. I love that. Use what you're good at to make other people better and create a positive impact on the world in your own unique way in a place that captures your attention. Yeah. I love that. I love the attitude of servantship. And I truly am a firm believer if you had listened to my episode where Josh had interviewed me, you would know time and time again. I really think so much good comes out of us just serving others. I could not agree more. And my favorite, you wrap that up very similar, similarly to what I would have as well. And I do think it's just continuing to pull those things out of people. One of my favorite questions that someone had asked me before, before I truly knew my purpose or my why even for that matter, is if it were your birthday and time and money were not an issue, what would you go do? How would you spend that day dedicated to you? What would that look like? And I think that does help a lot of people break down what they genuinely want to spend their time on Mm -hmm. if time and money were not an issue. And I think that can wrap it up. I agree. I'll add one last thing. Yeah, please. Um, Don't isolate yourself into one thing. You can have multiple purposes. For example, I've got a one-year-old little daughter, and since before I ever met her, I've said for a long time that when I did have kids, I never want to tell them no Mm. because I can't do something. Yeah. I want to tell them no because I'm trying to teach them something. Yeah. Wow. That's that's powerful. And, and, and it requires a lot of responsibility on me to become the person that can do that. And, and so that magnifies my other purposes in life. Yeah. And if you can do that, then you'll be on the right path. Absolutely. That's super powerful. That's when we drop the mic right there. Thank you, Gina. <sighs> Michael, thank you so much for joining us. If you don't mind really quickly just telling the people where they can follow you, find you at, get in contact with you, all of those good details so they can stay in touch. Yeah, absolutely. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm probably most active on LinkedIn. Or you can email me at michael at resolutefuture.com. Happy to hang out with any co-conspirators who believe in this mission and um, looking forward to connecting. Awesome. Thank you so much, Michael. I appreciate it. It was another good day. We had another good day. And if you line up enough good days, fuck around and have a good life.